Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, we preview the World Cup both on and off the field. What should we expect from the tournament itself, and what should we understand about the circumstances surrounding it? My name is Chad Widely, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, we are finally bringing our much-anticipated World Cup preview podcast. The mm-hmm. World Cup starts in less than a week. It starts in yeah. like seven days from now. It is. We have been waiting for this, and it is. It is here. It is at long last here. It's been a strange time, and you know, it's been weird because this is also obviously in the fall, which just like makes World Cup vibes feel completely off in a sense but i think it's going to be it's going to be interesting with all the controversy that we've talked about and we'll get into a little bit more of that today i do think it'll be kind of fun to have like a thanksgiving christmas world cup festival of festival of soccer i think it's going to be a good time yeah i mean i've already marked off my my calendar there's some you know day after thanksgiving usa action there's going to be going right through the holidays i think it doesn't end like is it a week before Christmas? December or? like 19th or something like that. Yeah. So basically from mid-November all the way through Thanksgiving and then right up until Christmas, which is, like you said, a first for the World Cup, at least in our lifetime. It's going to be weird. Winter I'm, I'm going to be so busy, so busy on Thanksgiving. Like mm-hmm. there'll be the cooking and the eating. And then I think I think there are four World Cup games plus the NFL slate of action. Like crazy. I don't know what I'm going to be. I'm going to have a computer on with games on literally during the entire cooking process. And it's I was going to say, be, you're, certainly, you're certainly not going to be fellowshipping with your family on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> I will be, but like, you know, I, I'll have, I'll be a little distracted. I guess we'll put I it understand. that way. Yeah, yeah. I understand. <laughs> John, there's a lot to talk about uh, this week. We wanted to follow up on a couple of stories that we've already talked about. And then mm-hmm. obviously we'll hit on the World Cup on and off the field with the, with the, the issues surrounding it and then also what what to expect from the game as we know that a lot of kind of casual soccer fans are going to tap into this at least and so giving at least some semblance of who's good what the groups are and Mm -hmm. maybe a team or two that they can root for if they're so interested besides just america we haven't talked about the britney griner situation in a while john and that's because not a lot has happened she had been sentenced and we talked about that and She'd been sentenced to like eight to 10 years of labor in a penal colony, and she was being held pending appeal. And we, the, you know, as far as we knew, the negotiations between Secretary Blinken and the Russian Secretary of State was ongoing to have a, some sort of exchange to get her released. But last week, a piece of news did break a headline that now that transfer to a penal colony has actually gone through. She has been transferred. As of this recording, her family, her attorneys don't exactly know where, but it's somewhere in a penal colony where she will be doing labor. It's kind of everything you can imagine from a, the stereotypes of a Russian penal colony is kind of what this is. I guess I wanted to talk about this because it is news, but also because my reaction to the story kind of surprised me because when mm-hmm. we talked about this situation before i think we did do a good job of expressing the seriousness of it but i guess somewhere deep in my subconscious i never actually imagined that it would get to this point i some i think i just had faith that some sort of exchange would happen before she started actually serving this sentence in fact people were describing the sentencing or the conviction as a formality for 
the for the prisoner exchange to even start happening. And so I guess I was just surprised that it actually has gotten to this point and now she is in fact in in the midst of a of a potentially decades long sentence. Well yeah, I think it's the issues that we're always dealing with here is that Russia is a rogue state right now. TJ Quinn, who is an ESPN writer, who's both appeared on ESPN Daily to talk about this, as well as written a bunch of articles on the situation and has kind of been covering Russia extensively in regards to this whole story. He kind of talked on ESPN Daily, I guess it was last week, about how much of Russia's like approach here is based basically on trying to keep the U.S. off balance, you know, and so I think we didn't expect that this was going to happen. I certainly didn't because, you know, she's clearly a strong asset for the U.S. or I like a strong American asset in Russian hands, you know, that is pretty high profile and has received a lot of attention at this point. So I guess, you know, sending someone off to proverbial Siberia, like we don't know where exactly she is, but, you know, that's something that's been like the Russian Siberian labor camps have been something that have been documented throughout like the entirety of Russian history, you know, and the terrible conditions as well as the risk to serious long-term injury and illness and even potential death is something that I guess in my mind, when you are looking to exchange a prisoner in the near term, you probably wouldn't send someone off into those kind of conditions, given that there's a potential that they might not be up to surviving that you know you never know what happens when people are put under that pressure so i think that's a little bit worrying that and i guess also surprising that the russians see this very clearly as a situation where they're completely in control and are willing to basically jeopardize her potentially which i think demonstrates like you know we've we've talked a lot about what the u.s can be doing in this situation and i think this move demonstrates how little the U.S. is actually in control of the situation, no matter how much pressure, quote unquote, is put on Biden or anyone else. You know, ultimately, we're in a state of proxy Cold War with Russia to a degree. Russia holds all the cards in this situation. And we're kind of just kind of have to hope that we can come up with some kind of deal that will be able to convince them to let her go. But it's not a good situation. And it, it worries me a lot, honestly. Yeah, one of one of Vladimir Putin's objectives is to make President Joe Biden look weak and right. ineffective as a leader and unable to bring her home. And one way that he does that is by making this prisoner exchange impossible by asking for so much. For example, it's been reported that he has asked for uh, a German prisoner in exchange for Brittany Griner. And obviously, America has no legal authority to release a German prisoner, we, I guess we could, in theory, ask Germany to release them. They could say no, and then there's nothing we could do. And so they're kind of asking Joe Biden or demanding that he do the impossible. And when he can't do the impossible, they know that he's going to take the blame and he's going to look weak and ineffective, even though it's not all entirely his fault. And obviously there is a line that he can't achieve you know what i mean like there's there is a, a, there's a line where he can't do it anymore um and that's worth worth noting so i do worry for the situation i worry mostly for um for britney like you mentioned for her safety because we know that these penal colonies can be can be really really scary and uh can be quite dangerous and so hoping that 
that she's safe and that this situation continues to have a lot going on behind the scenes negotiations that we don't know mm-hmm. about but that we can presume are are hopefully taking place yeah i mean it's it's just wild the situation that we're in that you know the last time we talked about this i think was when we offered victor boot to russia in exchange for her who is you know a well-known basically sponsor of international terrorism like that's kind of the stakes we're working with here and russia is clearly willing to drive the stakes even higher and I guess the the concern is that like this this could drag on for years before we ever actually get a resolution to this, and I think that's what I'm most worried about, especially with this penal colony move. Is like we have no idea how long this is going to last. Mm-hmm. It could happen this year. It could happen in like five, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like that just adds a whole other layer here. Is that Russia will be incredibly willing to wait this out, you know, as much as they feel like is necessary to continue playing the cards they have yeah john i think in terms of what the listeners expectations should be going forward i don't think that we should expect to hear much more to be honest Mm -hmm. with you i think that as these things happen like i said behind the scenes this is going to be something that is in the public consciousness for a while when there are big updates and headlines but we just have to assume and hope that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that we just aren't aware of so We'll continue to monitor this story, but I don't think this is something that we're going to be able to talk about every week because I don't think this mm-hmm. this could be. We just have to be ready to settle in for for a pretty long situation here, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the um, Gary Powers incident in 1960 where a U.S. pilot was shot down and imprisoned over the Soviet Union, he was in captivity. I just looked it up for, it was like over a year mm. at the very least, you know, so... He was shot down in like 60 and I think he was exchanged officially at the beginning of 62 so like and that was like a very high profile thing with you know it was just a regular old pilot um, which obviously was very valuable to the US but you know that's kind of like just a ballpark of how long these things can last when even when both sides are negotiating for the entire time yeah John, our next story is one that we was was the subject of the last podcast and kind of in an, in an awkward moment. We had a conversation and then a lot happened the night after we recorded before the podcast was out. So we actually haven't talked together since he was suspended, since his apology. Um, obviously, I had a voice note at the beginning of the last podcast explaining the new developments. I, I think listening back to our initial thoughts i think we were both surprised that he was suspended because <laughs> mm-hmm, we were very <laughs> we were very very skeptical of it at the time what we were recording that that he would face any punishment even since that podcast we've learned that he has met with adam silver personally mm-hmm. and that they've had a conversation we also know that his uh, sponsorship with nike has been most likely terminated it's been at least suspended but phil knight indicated in an interview with CNBC, Phil Knight is the founder and uh, CEO of Nike, that it's it seems like that partnership will not be renewed. And so he's likely no longer going to be a Nike athlete going forward. He is, his indefinite suspension is ongoing. He has not yet returned to play. Uh, we don't know when that's going to happen. But um, there have been some comments in the media, and I wanted to at least get your reaction to the suspension, to the punishment. Mm-hmm. We didn't get to talk about that last time. And then we can talk about a few of the more recent comments that we've seen in the in the past week or so. Right. So, so yeah, I think 
I personally think Adam Silver probably played a pretty big role in this because when during the period when he still was not suspended, at least in my memory of the timeline, Silver kind of released some comments basically saying, I'm surprised that he hasn't apologized or done anything yet. And pretty shortly afterward that night, I think it was announced that the Nets had suspended him. Um, So I, I do think that from everything Adam Silver has said, he did an interview with the New York Times at some point, either this week or last, talking about his conversations with Kyrie, as well as kind of, I think, his expectations, as well as the Nets' expectations for moving forward. And Silver seems to, his viewpoint seems to be, from what he said, that he doesn't believe Kyrie is actually anti-Semitic, from what he said, which I guess would kind of imply that he thinks that Kyrie's probably just intentionally trying to stir up controversy, as he is prone to do in most kinds of circumstances. That's just conjecture. But, you know, I think that I'm glad that we reached the point that we did. I, I was surprised that he got suspended, but I think it was the right call. I think it was the right call from Nike to actually take action against this and not just kind of allow it to be swept under the rug like a lot of these other kind of comments that we've seen um, in the media from various people at times. Um, so I think I think that was I think that was the right move, um, and I was kind of I guess pleasantly surprised about that. I think the question the question now moving forward is basically at what point do you allow him to be reinstated? And there have been kind of a lot of comments about that. That I, I don't know if you've seen many of them, but that's kind of been an interesting kind of like side note to this story now that it's continuing. Well, yeah, I mean, I we I don't know if you're referring to comments of whether or not he should be reinstated. I've seen comments saying he never should have been suspended at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think obviously you and I agree that the punishment is well deserved. We right. we were wondering if he should ever play basketball for the Nets again, but um, there have been some very public voices in the NBA community, in the game, in the media, who are questioning the the punishment and thinking that it's too severe. Kyrie Irving, Stephen A. Smith. And I think one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about this tub deck today is because you wanted to respond to to those comments in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so LeBron tweeted November 10th, quote, I told you guys that I don't believe in sharing hurtful information and I'll continue to be that way, but Kyrie apologized and he should be able to play. That's what I think. It's that simple. Help him learn, but he should be playing. What he's asked to do to get back on the floor, I think, is excessive IMO. He's not the person that's being portrayed of him. Anyways, back to my rehab session, end quote. So LeBron says that. Stephen A. Smith goes on the air. I think it was like a couple days later or a day later uh, on TV on first take and basically says Kyrie's not being allowed to return and the suspension remains indefinite and basically said that it was because he was black that he was being suspended indefinitely and that the league just didn't want him to play because they were applying a different standard to him than to other people. And you go into the comments of what Stephen A said and everyone, you know, there's this whole firestorm of people basically supporting that, supporting that viewpoint. And I just, for for both these people, you know, taking LeBron's, what LeBron said first, LeBron said, what he's being asked to do to get back on the floor is excessive. Going over to uh, what CBS reported as the requirements for Kyrie Irving to be reinstated by the team, Irving needs to apologize and condemn the film he promoted. 
number one, which he's done in part, but I don't think he's really done a full explanation, as far as I know, of what all is wrong in that movie. He needs to make a $500,000 donation to anti-hate causes, complete sensitivity training, complete anti-Semitism training, meet with the ADL and Jewish leaders, and meet with the team owner to demonstrate an understanding of the situation. I know he's met with Joe Tsai, the Brooklyn Nets owner. I know he tried to give a $500,000 donation to the ADL, which was rejected initially. Maybe Mm -hmm. they've accepted it since then. I don't know where he's at with his training, but I I also don't think that he's given a full condemnation of that film as far as I know. Not that I've seen. I just don't, don't, I don't think that's, that's somehow like insane requirements for being allowed to compete on a basketball team. Like that's again, for a fireable offense, you know, in all normal workplaces, having that as a bare minimum of what he should be doing for putting forth like blatant hate speech toward a people group to me is like, okay, well, this, this is like a bare minimum punishment here, you know? And to one to say that's crazy. And then to say that somehow that it's because he's black when we literally talked last time we talked about how Myers Leonard, who is white, said one anti-Jewish slur and was immediately suspended indefinitely has not played again since that point. Yeah. You know, and Kyrie's a much higher profile player, which on the one hand is like, you know, you you normally you'd think he gets a little bit, a little bit more preferential treatment here, but I think he should be receiving the punishment that are is due his actions. So I don't I don't know. I just it's it's just strange to me. I don't know why you would bring race into it even as a topic when we're discussing hate speech toward a different race like i just it's just like so much water battery yeah i think something i've seen and i don't know if that's if this is exactly what's going on in this case but this is true racially politically um in, in many contexts in life and it's just the idea that people tend to assume the best intentions of their group and assume mm-hmm. the worst intentions of the other of an of a group that they don't support or don't agree with that's true politically but i think there is some some understandable but i think misguided reaction among among the black community to is to just assume that Kyrie Irving's intentions were were okay um lebron talks about how in his personal relationship with with um with Kyrie Irving he's never seen him as being hateful stephen a smith kind of said something similar Jamel Hill in her article for The Atlantic about this subject, she she kind of did condemn Kyrie Irving's comments, but she said that it was more so due to ignorance than it was due to to hatred. And and she kind of talks about how as well, like it's how it's a struggle for for black men to find their identity. And so doing doing an identity search is understandable. Um, and, and so, so you know, maybe he was just searching for his identity and he was misguided. Um, I, I, it could be the case that Kyrie Irving is just an, a remarkably ignorant person on this issue, but that's certainly not how he comes across. Um, he, and he, he certainly talks, yeah. and he talks like he's a know-it-all. Like, he talks like he's incredibly educated and informed. Um, he, he speaks with authority. I would argue a false sense of authority in terms of his knowledge of the facts but he doesn't come across like someone who's inquisitive he comes across like someone who is informed and very firm in his beliefs and so i i guess i just wonder if the obviously i haven't seen lebron stephen smith jamel hill agree with Kyrie's right, comments of course yeah, yeah, yeah 
and they've been pretty clear that they do not agree Kevin right. Durant the same way um, but I do wonder if there is a sense that they are give, just giving him the benefit of the doubt in his motives and I don't know if his actions merit that LeBron knows Kyrie Irving better than I do that's a fact maybe he, mm-hmm. I don't he knows what kind of person Kyrie Irving is I, I would assume um, so I take that I do take that seriously but I don't I guess I do think that there is not I, I don't think that I would just assume that he did not mean what he said and did not mean it in a directly antagonistic way right I think I think it's a really good point and I think it also ties into the, what we talked about last week is that anti-semitism is just an issue that people kind of sweep under the rug a lot of the times and it's easier to do that with a topic like anti-semitism than with a race category that's more easily defined and that people you know is at the front of social issues that everyone's talking about you know if like Luka Doncic posted I don't know like a manifesto of the KKK on his Twitter I think I think there would be no like equivocation about what people's views on that was you know I think it would be very clear where everyone stands on an NBA player posting KKK literature on his social media. And that's basically what this is, right? But just towards a different racial group, you know? And I, I, I don't know. I think to me, I think that's another factor in this conversation that is, I think, part of why this is like upsetting to me is that you're, you're once again seeing double standards and what people like LeBron are willing to address in the NBA. Right. I, Adam Silver obviously understands intimately mm-hmm. what it is okay. to be a Jewish man in America. Um, so, so his words about Kyrie, uh, he said that Kyrie, you know, understood that what he was doing was wrong, expressed contrition, seemed to understand the harm he had caused. I, I, do, I do take that seriously, and I think there's Definitely. good reason to. He's someone who would be very sensitive to the problems being caused, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Um, I think we'll leave it there, John. One last thing before the big story, and we'll we'll keep this one short. But just um, as the NFL, the National Football League, continues to grow internationally, they played in Germany. Mm-hmm. In is it the Allianz Arena? At the Allianz Arena, the, in, in that's Munich. the home of Bayern Munich. One of, I guess, like the biggest stadium in Germany. I Probably at least one of the biggest to. ones. Yeah. Um, and it was the uh, I can't even remember the Bucks versus the Seahawks. Who? This Bucks and the Seahawks, mm-hmm. and it was a pretty good game. The Buccaneers came out to a big lead. The um, Seahawks brought it all the way back, but the Bucks did prevail in the end. That they did. But this was just an iconic moment because there have been viral videos of the entire Allianz Arena singing "Country Roads Take Me Home," and just the common American commentators being absolutely wowed by German fan culture. And I don't know, I it just sitting there watching it i was like man i was like we need to we need to like import this stuff over to america like i i'd love for stadiums to be singing singing songs throughout an nfl game like that like i think that's a unique part of soccer culture that i think every sport could do with yeah i can't think of a time that we sing yeah I, like, there's I like college too. fight songs but i think call like the college fight song is the closest thing to like to that you know and i think i think that's like when you have like 80,000 people all singing like that, like it's really just such a unique experience that I feel like, I feel like we could do with an import. I agree. I agree. I, I am glad to see the NFL 
continue to go abroad. They've been to mm-hmm. England, they've been to Mexico, now they've been to Germany. I hope that continues. The NFL is a good product, and it's it's been such an American thing for such a long time. Be, mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily think that a team should be exported across the world, but certainly right. in terms of fan culture and interest, I'm glad that this is happening. It's really growing for sure, but it is now talk about time to talk about the real global sport, the Super Bowl of the world, if I might <laughs> use a football analogy, <laughs> an actual um, world championship. Yeah, you're you're right. This this actually is the biggest event in the world. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, globally it's probably bigger than the olympics to be honest with you oh it is this is the world cup it's been in existence for a long time it has a storied history i don't need to explain that the world cup is important mm-hmm. um it's more important here in the states this year than it was last time because unlike last time the usa is actually in it we've qualified which did <laughs> not happen <laughs> in 2018 um so we're gonna be there and that's gonna bring in I guess that's going to just bring the casual American citizen at least consciously aware of it because national pride kind of takes over and we all kind of get swept up in it anyway. But before we talk about the games, we need to talk about the story around it. We've been talking about this for years, ever since it was announced. Mm -hmm. The open corruption and bribery that went into this decision to give the World Cup to Qatar, the literal envelopes of money being exchanged hands for this to happen... And then civil rights issues, human rights issues, a massive number of deaths as a result of stadium construction and worker conditions, migrant conditions that have been horrible. And now, a as we get really close to the games, we're starting to see that the fan experience might actually not be that good either. Uh, mm-hmm. Fans on the ground, fan ambassadors, fan ambassadors are having a really hard time finding drinks, finding places to watch the game. Transportation is a mess. Housing is a mess. This is a country that tried to rush this project and were not ready. They did not have the infrastructure to host this tournament. They were not able to make the infrastructure suitable to do a really, really good job with this tournament. We're going to talk about all of that. This is kind of just an introduction. But John, I guess the question I want to start with is the question that I think a lot of athletes, journalists, and fans are going to have to ask themselves this week, which is, do you feel conflicted watching the World Cup this year, being part of this event as a Mm. fan, as a viewer? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, the answer is absolutely, unequivocally, yes. Like, I I remember when they announced that the World Cup was going to be in Qatar. And it it was basically like a dead heat between the u.s and qatar for this world cup which the u.s ended up getting it in 2026 anyway but the question was was the u.s and mexico going to kind of like do a joint world cup or were we going to give it to was fifa going to give it to qatar and i think it was i think it was in 2010 when they announced it um for reference in terms of all these issues that you just discussed qatar is about the size of connecticut Um, So logistically, you know, automatically you're like, why would you hold a World Cup in a country that small? Yeah. And the answer, of course, is corruption. Since the World Cup was given to Qatar, the allegations, not even the allegations, but just the investigations into the corruption that happened at FIFA that allowed this to happen through basically just bribery is insane. And that's why this is happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but just to say the next World Cup 2026 is going to span the entire continent of North America. Mm -hmm. It is going to be 
all across the United States, in Canada, and in Mexico. And you're saying that that same tournament is being <laughs> housed in, in Connecticut, basically. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and the, the fact is, Qatar does not have, did not have the infrastructure back then to host the World Cup. And it's clear that though they do have at least most of the infrastructure to host it now, it, they don't have the infrastructure to host it in a way that will actually be an enjoyable experience for fans of the World Cup. And I don't know, it's just the entire situation from top to bottom is crazy. Like, basically the entire leadership of FIFA in the aftermath of the situation where the Qatar World Cup bid basically bribed the entire executive committee of FIFA to give them the World Cup and vote for them. That whole situation happened, investigations occurred, and it basically, the, all the corruption came out. All of FIFA's leadership essentially was fired, people were put in jail. It is perhaps the greatest instance of sports corruption in the history of humanity, period. Like, from the top down. And what we're dealing with is the consequences of that now. And I think we've that's being talked about, but I, I don't think that can be emphasized enough that we are dealing with the consequences of the governing body of soccer basically being run by robber barons for a certain period of time. And they're still corrupt now, but what was happening then is actually staggering. And Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA now, is basically just trying to do damage control. He, at one point, put out a statement basically asking, recently before the World Cup, saying, let's just keep this about the sports, please. We don't need to talk about all the other issues. And that's just that's just not true, because even if the corruption wasn't true, like even if that was not a factor, Qatar is still a deeply problematic host for the World Cup for a variety of reasons that are not just logistical. And I think, I'm sure that's something we're going to talk about a little bit here, but I think that that multi-pronged kind of problematic situation here that we have with the World Cup means that this is going to be a World Cup that we both enjoy and kind of loathe at the same time, I think. Yeah, let me let me kind of put a bow on the logistic stuff with this statistic. Um, in 2018, the total cost for Russia to host the World Cup, and that includes the money spent on building stadiums and infrastructure was $11.6 billion. The World Cup in 2022 for the same criteria was $220 billion, which is like 10 times more than any other World Cup has ever cost. That's insane. Um, so, And what that means is that Qatar was not awarded the World Cup based on the merit of their country at the time that it was awarded. They clearly mm -hmm. were not ready. This was a huge gamble to see if they could get ready. And it's looking like they at least are going to be functionally ready, but at a tremendous cost to them. It is a, That is a staggering amount of money that they've spent to make this tournament happen. Did you say $220 billion? $220 billion, billion wow. with a B dollars. <laughs> staggering, really. It is staggering, yeah. Um, and another way, and I think this is the most significant thing we need to talk about before we get to the games, the most significant thing that happened to make this happen is the fact that Qatar is not a very populated country. There aren't a lot of Qatari mm -hmm. citizens. And so for many of the infrastructure projects, working projects, they have brought in hundreds of thousands of migrant workers and dozens, hundreds of those migrant workers have died due to the conditions in Qatar where it is very hot in the summer, 
where they have not had very safe conditions. Um, literally, literal, you know, cartloads of bodies are being sent out of out of the country. That's true. Like, people are just migrant workers are coming in. They are dying. Their their bodies are being sent back to their homelands, and that's ha- that's just not one or two instances. This is many many instances of this happening, all because there was this giant rush to get this project done. And when there's a rush, there's a disregard for human life and human safety. And on top of that, the contracts that these migrant workers were working under have been described as forms of modern day slavery by human rights activists. There have been huge pressure on the government to fix these conditions. There have been some improvements. But again, there isn't just a financial cost to this, but there has been a a literal human cost, a moral cost, a life of loss, loss of life cost for this tournament to exist. And again, when we think about the corruption that went into this happening and the cost financially, the bribes, the buildings, the projects, all of that, and then you add on to that the disregard for human life in the rush to to build these stadiums, to build these fan sites, it really does become, like you said, like morally odious. Mm-hmm. And while, while the soccer itself is going to be beautiful, there are going to be wonderful goals in this tournament, we're going to have a really good time watching the soccer there is this giant stain behind it that even when you're watching the best soccer you've ever seen, it's still gonna, it's not gonna entirely wash away that stain. Yeah, and I think like, I think that's really good imagery you're using because we've talked about sports watching on this podcast numerous times and that's exactly what this is from top to bottom is a project to try to kind of purge the bad human rights record of Qatar with sports fun and to say oh everyone here look at this festival of soccer we're a great country we're nice people we you know we support everybody you know while meanwhile to a certain degree you know obviously there'll be gay fans hope at least wanting to attend the world cup right and in general in qatar that kind of um, behavior is illegal so that's in terms of an inclusivity situation you know they they don't allow that i think the it's been really well documented what you were talking about with with the migrant workers and it's really it, it's what's really serious about it that's been documented by people like the guardian and Josimar and a lot of other different independent investigators and things like that is that you know basically throughout the gulf states because these countries aren't super well populated like you said they do need that population of workers and basically what they'll do from bringing them in from places like india is bring them in and then basically they'll take their passports away so they can't leave the country and then basically have them operate as a form of slaves like you said until the projects are done which with Qatar right now is basically never and so there have been people dying and it's a super serious situation and the soccer world has responded in various ways the Australian national team did put out a video basically you know, calling out the situation and saying like, you know, we're coming to play here, but this is an unacceptable situation and bringing awareness to that, which I thought was awesome. The uh, The Danish national team is playing basically without any designs on their jerseys this year um, in collaboration with Hummel, their, uh, their shirt designer, basically doing like blackout jerseys, um, including a black jersey that actually is like they're calling like a morning jersey, which I think is pretty cool too. Did you see that? You mentioned the Danish, the Dem- that Denmark also wanted to wear warm-up shirts that said human rights for all on them, mm-hmm. and FIFA banned, said they weren't allowed to do that. 
Oh, I don't know if I did see that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I mean, you just you see FIFA's complete disregard for the situation here because obviously they're trying to protect their reputation. But I think it's it's clear, especially among a lot of the European teams, that there is a, a clear understanding that this is wrong. What's happening? And I think I've been glad that there's been so much press about the situation throughout the media because it's something that's really it's heinous you know the fact that a festival of soccer like you said that we want to enjoy has been built on the backs of slaves in the year 2022 yeah and we're just supposed to pretend like it's not happening yeah you mentioned kind of the the not unique but kind of unique to the middle eastern region kind of moral regulations that qatar has um and that's just isn't just something that's in the backdrop. That's something that's impacting the actual fan experience. And mm-hmm. I do want to touch briefly on what, what fans who are attending can expect before we get to the games themselves. You mentioned that, you know, homosexual fans who want to attend don't know if they're going to be physically safe. They've, mm-hmm. There are some verbal assurances from Qatar that any fan who attends will be safe, but that's no guarantee how freely can a homosexual fan express their behavior there and not expect some sort of punishment? Unclear. Uh, additionally, Qatar has a quote-unquote sin tax on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and al- alcohol is a big part of soccer culture, especially in the countries like the UK, um, English fans. And I've seen that prices can range up to like minimum $12 for a beer. Can Which be up like to like... Ca- it's like a case of beer. Yeah. Could be up to like $90, depending on yeah. where you go, what what kind of fan zone you're in just to, to buy alcohol um, due to Qatar's moral moral issues with alcohol. Um, it, it is something that like, again, is not just in a hypothetical backdrop thing. This this is something this country's positions and stances are having a... are going to have a day-to-day impact on the fans who are attending. So mm-hmm. are there anything else that you want to note, particularly about the fan experience? We've kind of seen pictures of some of the fan villages and stuff and... It doesn't look like a whole lot of fun to me, if I'm being honest with you. It kind of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it kind the, of looks like, <laughs> to me, it looks like the fire festival, the that like fake music festival that just that that uh, you, you watch the documentaries of, where there's these like tents <laughs> and it's all like really not working and it's on this beach and yeah, I, it, it looks really weird to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the pictures came out of a supposed fan village in Qatar that literally is like converted shipping containers. Like I don't know how nice they are on the inside, but like that's that's that that those are the facilities you're putting fans up in. Like that's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. You're saying we're w- w- willing and able to host this tournament as this tiny country, and we're going to spend the money to make it happen. And that's the infrastructure you're putting in place. Like if if this ever happens again in world soccer, I like I I I feel like federations just have to split off FIFA. Like I don't know what I don't know what else you do. Like this is insane. Yeah. This is an insane situation. It's ridiculous and it is terrible. And you know, I think there always is kind of the boycott question. I you know, I think we're both gonna be watching the games, but I also fully understand the people who say, you know what, I can't watch this. I think that's mm-hmm. also just a thing to note on this on the side that that I think that is a completely valid response to this is saying, you know what in any way that Qatar would get my money from this, Qatar is not going to. Yeah. John, let's talk a little bit about the actual World Cup. Let's that's, do it. That's what we're going to be watching for the next month. Let me run at least through some of the highlights of the groups, 
just to give people kind of an awareness of where teams are. And then from there, we can maybe make some predictions and talk about some of our expectations. This is your first World Cup with the USA in it, right? Since I've been a soccer fan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's an exciting and time. Let me start with the USA. Uh, the USA, we are we are in Group B. Your group is the, mm-hmm. the teams you play before the knockout rounds to, to see your position. Group B is England, USA, Wales, and Iran. That is going to be the group that most American fans are paying the most attention to. Wales and England are both very, very good teams. Iran is not that bad either. Um, and the USA, obviously, are hoping to do well. So that's going to be a good group. In terms of like the really, really good groups... Group E has both Spain and Germany and Japan mm-hmm. in it. That's going to be a really, really good group. I'm also looking at Group G with with Brazil as kind of the clear favorite there. Group H, which has Korea, Portugal, and Uruguay in it, as well as Ghana. That's going to be a really good group. John, are there any other... You know, one of the things that as soccer fans we do is kind of try to identify the group of death, which is the mm-hmm. group that has the, the best overall teams. Uh, which one is in your opinion, the the strongest group? I think Group E is the group of death here because Spain and Germany being in the same group is kind of a crazy draw. Those are two of the teams that, like, on paper are in kind of the upper bracket of these teams, if they get themselves together, could make a very deep run in this tournament. So the fact that they're in the same group means that one of them is going to finish second and get placed up against a group winner. Um because that's a, an important thing to note is there are 16 teams that make the playoffs out of the 32 in the groups um all the group winners and second place finishers in each group uh, move on to the next round and every second place team will play a first place mm-hmm. team in the knockouts so if you play second in your group you're going to end up say if you're germany because there's a kind of a, a set order of who you play based on your group if you're germany and you play second in your group you end up against the first place of Group F, which is either probably going to be Croatia or Belgium. So mm-hmm. say if Belgium finishes first, you then have to play Belgium in the first round of the knockouts, which is not ideal. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, as we kind of, I want to do, I want to kind of have a fun way to go through some of our personal things to watch for. And I guess one way that we could do it would be to first kind of identify a big, a, a quote-unquote big super team that you think will underperform, that will not do well. I have two of them. Do you have any mm-hmm. of those? I, 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 I do. I, I fear that... Well, actually, no, I know we have a little bit of non-overlap. So I'm going to go with mine. Okay. Um, I think my first one is Belgium. Belgium's in a group with Croatia, Canada, and Morocco in Group F. I think that Croatia has reached the point with the squad that they have that they're not a dark horse anymore. In 2018, they were a dark horse when they made it all the way to the final and lost to France. At this point, they've put in enough consistent results and have good enough players that I'm pretty confident in them as a good team. And Belgium has had one of the greatest generations that we've seen from a soccer team in recent history. And I think this is this tournament is going to be the end of that generation's run. I do think they're going to make it out of the group, but I think they're going to lose to Canada and barely drag it out of the group on goal difference and play second. I also think that France, as good as the squad is, may run into trouble. They've lost to Denmark quite recently, actually. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised if Denmark actually beats them again um, to place first in that group. I don't think France is a bad team by any means, 
but they're going to be up against Argentina in the round of 16 if they play second in their group, um, which I think would be a very intriguing matchup. You know, that I'm not super confident in that, but that's kind of my upset pick is I don't think France is going to start off the tournament well, and I think they could go out in the round of 16 very easily. There has been almost no, I think the last three World Cups, the tournament champion from the last year didn't make it out of the group stages. Mm. So France, mm. it would not be outside the realm of possibility to Fran- for France to go out early. Yeah, I'll be honest. You and I could not disagree about France more, which will come up mm-hmm. at the end of this podcast. But um, I do agree with you on Belgium. I actually went a step further. I don't have Belgium coming out of the group. I mm. have them finishing third in their group behind Croatia and also Canada, who are a pretty young, pretty athletic team that I think could could shock some people. My other, quote-unquote, really good team that I don't think will do well is Portugal, who mm. I don't think are a good, cohesive team at all. Cristiano Ronaldo kind of looms as a, as a potential problem for them. It's weird to say that about one of the greatest players of all time, but he is not that guy anymore. And so I have, I have Portugal finishing second in their group behind Korea, and the team that finishes second in that group most likely has to play Brazil in mm-hmm. the round of 16. And I think, so I think Portugal will go out in the round of 16 to Brazil. And that would be, I think, a disappointment for, for a team that should expect, should be hoping to be at least a, a quarterfinal or a semifinal team. Uh, on the flip side of that, John, who are like the the big teams that you are looking for as, as like, who are the juggernaut teams? What is the, what is the tier one for you? I think, well, we've talked about this. I think Brazil and Argentina are clearly in that top bracket right now brazil has an incredibly strong squad that you know it's midfield maybe a like moderately shaky but still has world-class midfielders casemiro um for uh not fernandinho fabinho fabinho fred not fred no (laughs) he probably will start Fred probably will start and he is probably one of the weaker links in that team that being said you know world cup teams are often strange and players that you may not expect to perform well sometimes perform well in world cups so we'll see we'll see how that goes you kind of have to just play with what you have and i think overall brazil on paper has an excellent squad i think argentina also has is coming into the world cup on a very hot run of form which always kind of does well in propelling you forward i think spain's a team to watch i think spain has been a good team over the last Especially at the Euros, Spain was pretty solid, and qualifying Spain was pretty solid. Um, I know they didn't perform that great at the World Cup last time. I believe they lost to Russia in the round of 16 on penalties, if I remember correctly, um, from uh, from how wild that game was. I think it was 1-1, and they just they just couldn't get anything going. But I think there's a it's a much younger team now, and I do think that it has a lot of good players if it can find the goals to move forward. Um, so those are kind of those are some of mine. Germany is a strange team to me. Germany, England, France are teams that are all good in my mind, but maybe have some question marks around how far they're going to go. Yeah, I have. Um, I, I think Germany are actually a tier below. I don't think they're as good this year. They don't have Tony Cruz this year, mm-hmm. who is retired. They really don't have a, a clear attack as well. They kind of have a few players who can compete for that, but they don't have a. Um, a, a very very strong forward line and a huge loss in the midfield with the absence of Tony Cruz. So I would be looking for Germany to underperform as opposed to overperform. I, mm-hmm. I would I'd be stunned if they won. My tier one is like you said Brazil Argentina. You explained Brazil. Argentina has never done well with Messi, but then, then they won the Copa America in 2020. 
which mm-hmm. was huge. It was Messi's first international title. That's a really talented team. And then I have England and France. France, I look at like Brazil um, mm-hmm. as, in terms of talent. Their forward line is outrageous. They've got a an okay midfield, a, a, a pretty good defense, a great goalkeeper. I think they're going to be fine. England is as talented as any team. Can mm-hmm. they get over the hump? They've, they've, they've always seemed to lose in devastating fashion. Lost in the semifinals of the World Cup last time. Lost in the final of the Euros to a team that in Italy that didn't even make the World Cup this year. So really unsure about them. But in terms of talent and potential, they're right there. Uh, one more category, John, and then we'll do our semifinal and final picks. Mm-hmm. Underdog teams that you think will do well, make it to the knockout round, maybe win a round in the knockout round. What do you have there? How are we classifying I, underdogs at this point? Um, the eye test. Okay, okay, because like my my immediate immediate picks are like at this point Croatia is not one of the like big big teams, but I expect Croatia to do well in this tournament. Okay, I currently have them making the semifinals in my bracket. Okay, based on how I think things are going to go, um, I would watch out. I think you should watch out for Uruguay. I think depending on where they finish in their group and the draw that they get in the playoffs, I think this seems like a pretty well-drilled team that may make a decent run. Um, I think Group G is one to watch because Switzerland and Serbia are both pretty good teams in qualifying. Um, Switzerland is a good... I, I think Switzerland will make it out of that group. I, I don't know if how they'll measure up against the Group H team, but I think it's a very much a possibility that they could that they could win a game or two and then Denmark I think mm-hmm. you know we've talked about Denmark Denmark's obviously a good team they made it to the semis of the Euros yeah but I expect them to repeat that this year okay um my first pick is entirely predicated on him and son being healthy uh, mm-hmm. he, he broke his his face and is going to wear a mask but he did make the team so he is going to be at the World Cup um I have Korea in the quarterfinals um I don't I don't Again, if he doesn't play, I feel really bad about that pick. But if he does play, right. I think that that's a guy who can who can elevate a team to that level. I, mm-hmm. So I have them beating Switzerland in the round of 16, losing to Germany in the quarterfinals. My other, I guess, underdog-ish is, and I, then I want to hear where you have this team because this is this is the this is what people are here to hear. I have the USA in the quarterfinals. I I, I love that pick. I, have, I love that pick. I don't have them there, but okay. Yeah, I have. Give me, the give USA. me reasons why. I want to hear. I want to hear. I want to hear why you think this is going to happen. Well, I think that they can draw Wales mm-hmm. and beat Iran comfortably and qualify. You know, I have they, the other way around, but I think okay. I agree. Yeah, if they draw Iran and then, or I'm sorry, if they draw Wales, I, mean, I assume they're going to lose to England. But if they mm-hmm. then put three or four goals on Iran, then I think that they can finish second in their group. And then I have them second in the group against the winner of Group A, which I have the Netherlands, yep. who are really not that good of a team. Like, they mm-hmm. have a couple good players. They've got Frankie de Jong, who's had a good season for Barca, but the, that other part of the midfield, Donny van de Beek, has basically been non-existent for Manchester United. Memphis Depay, their regular striker, has not been a regular player for Barcelona, um, is not in good form. I don't think this is a particularly strong Dutch team. And so I see them vulnerable. So I, I get. I think against most group leaders, group winners, I would not pick the USA. But against the Netherlands, I think that they can finish second in, in their group and then beat the Netherlands as top of hmm. their group. And I think that they can make it to the quarterfinals where they will lose to Argentina probably like 5-0. Um, 
but yeah <laughs> but I, I i see the netherlands i see the group as open for them and i see the netherlands particularly mm-hmm. as vulnerable i like your pick i i also have them getting out of the group i wasn't confident at first but the more i've thought about it the more i feel like wales is 100 percent a winnable game um, and Iran is a very compact team that I anticipate being hard for the U.S. to break down. Um, but the U- Iran is also kind of a team in turmoil. I believe they fired their coach at some point, mm-hmm. uh, maybe last year. And they're also just the whole country is a disaster right now. Um, and I think that that always kind of plays a role in teams World Cup performances. So I anticipate the U.S., you know, they may have to scrap some results by, but I think they'll make it out. The Netherlands is an interesting game. I like your analysis. I worry about the U.S. defensively very much. And I think that is where, even when you have Dutch players that maybe aren't super sharp, you need a cohesive defensive structure. And maybe the U.S. can put it together. But I have not been super convinced by them in qualifying, I won't lie. And I do think that the Dutch players have the quality to beat us if they find a rhythm in Group A to begin with. If they okay. make, if they choke in the group, that's a whole other story, right? But I think if they if they win the group and make it out of the group with authority and pass that first test, I then would be worried about the USA's chances in that game because I don't think we're like better that much better than Senegal, for example. So you see the Netherlands as kind of a good cohesive whole, but do you agree with me that you don't? There isn't like one guy in the Netherlands that like scares you right now. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Frankie's been playing particularly well. I mean, no. they've got. You know, even I would have said two years ago, I would have said Van Dyke, but like Van Dyke's been out of form this year. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard much about Steven Bergwijn. They've got a lot of good young players who are at IX per usual that, you know, I do still think have the, the verve to buy you if you let them, you know, and I think that I think that's what I'm mostly worried about. I, I, I don't think it's an unwinnable game for the U.S. by any means. Argentina, for sure, most likely is. But the U.S. is going to have to find... A different groove than they've found in qualifying so far because the performances that i watched in qualifying were not particularly good even when they got results okay okay so let's do semifinals and finals mm-hmm. my semifinal i have argentina and brazil in one yep uh those are the two teams i said were in that top tier i think brazil will beat argentina in a in a revenge game from the copa america final in 2020 Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, I have France and Germany. I said Germany was a little bit weaker than England, but I have France and England playing in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. And Germany comes from the bottom. Again, I don't think Germany is that good, but I do think that if Manuel Neuer, their goalie, has a good tournament, he can keep them in it. Pretty, I mean, he's he's as good of a goalkeeper as you'll have in this sport. I do think they're a good, a good system team. Um, they've got good toughness, so I think they'll make it to the semis. But I think they'll lose pretty comfortably to France, who I think will just carve them apart, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And then I have, so France and Brazil in the final. I have Brazil winning. I think they're better than France. I think they're more talented than France. I think that they are the best team in this tournament. And I I honestly don't think it's super close. Like, if I could put them in their own tier, I think I would. I think Argentina is going to be the biggest test for them in the semis. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's going to be like the 2014 World Cup, where it was like, is Brazil going to pass by Germany as the best team in this tournament? And then Germany just absolutely gave them a hiding, and there was no question. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to end up like that. Uh, my semis are a little weird because I kind of made my bold you know, anti-France pick, which puts France up against Argentina in the first round. And I think Argentina does have the quality to get past them. It's a fun pick. 
am I super confident? I'm a little bit confident in it. So all this kind of rides on that. But as a result, I have England and Croatia in my semifinals as okay. a rematch of the 2018 World Cup semifinal. Um, and then Brazil and Argentina in the same uh, in the other bracket, just like you. I do think Brazil will win. I think England is going to beat Croatia this time. And I think England will lose to Brazil in the final. You have England losing in back-to-back major finals. That's so tough. I think that would be, as much as I love England, I think that would be the most poetic way for Southgate's reign to come to an end, unfortunately. Oh, so you're saying they lose in the final and then Gareth Southgate gets sacked, like, the next day. I think he would, I think he would probably resign. Oh, wow. Not like, is, not, this is a take, not like, John. Not like, not like right after, but I think, I think his cycle would be over. You're I not only think... predicting the tournament, you're predicting the end of an era. This, yeah, is, this no, is good stuff. 100%. Because I, I, I think Southgate has taken this England team to a, a height that they could not have imagined in 2010 when they lost to Germany. Or 2014 when I think they didn't even make it out of the group, if I remember correctly. I think Southgate took them to the semis in 2018, to the finals of the Euro last year. And I don't know. I think this England team, if you give them the right draw... I have them going up against Senegal, then Denmark, and then Croatia in the playoffs if things pan out for them. And that's a run that you can easily make as this England team and that you should make the final in, I think, if that's the draw you end up getting. Um, I think England should win their group. The expectation is on them to win their group, and I think they have the players to 100% do it. I don't think that this team beats Brazil unless they play differently than they did in the Euros. Mm-hmm. They have to be able to put games away and not just kind of bottle up and let the game pass them by. I think they have the players. On paper, I think this England team can beat that Brazil team. Hmm. Because there is, beyond the defense, I, there's a, they have a better midfield, I think. And they have a forward line that, though maybe not as good, can still generate results. International football is rarely, like wide open attacking football that I think will suit this Brazil team, you know? So I, I, I think it's going to be closer. All these games are going to be closer than we expect, but I do still think that Brazil will in the form they're in, they'll, they'll find a way past them. So that's my prediction. Brazil, England. That sounds good. That What you just described would be a very, very fun tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I am. I, I think that for the people listening who are going to, you know, may, may not be soccer people, but, are American most of our listeners are American who want to hear a little bit about that let me just say that this is one of the most exciting American teams we've had in a long time um, absolutely uh, so many of these players are playing in the top five leagues in in England and in, in France some are playing in in Italy um, you got got a guy in Spain so th- I mean this is a really real this is one of the most talented USA teams this is a team that I think is gonna be really exciting it's very young this is not going to be, I think, it's last World Cup. Well, obviously, we're, we're automatically no, qualified for the not. next one. But I think that, like, I think there's a chance that this team could be even better at the next World Cup because we're so young. Mm-hmm. This experience is going to be really, really valuable. And I'm really excited. So if, if you are a casual fan, um, you this is a team that I think you can you can tap into, that you're going to really like, that are going to be fun. Uh, there's good personalities. It's led by Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams. Those are Those are elite elite players in the top leagues in European soccer. They play for the best teams in the world. We've got really, really good fullbacks. Um, Anthony Robinson and Serginho Dest are both top, top, really well. top level yeah. fullbacks. Um, this is a goalkeeper. Our, our starting goalkeeper plays for Arsenal. Um, this is going to be a Matt good team. Turner. 
yeah, this is going to be a really, really good team. Um, I'm excited. So I'm the only thing I'm sad about is this would be the year I still don't have a USA jersey. This would be the year that I would say, you know what, I need to buy one, and they're terrible. They're really bad jerseys. They're awful jerseys. Mm-hmm. They, they're so bad. I'm much more likely right now to buy a Japan jersey than I am a USA jersey because the Japanese jerseys are really cool. I have I have the women's jersey from 2019 for USA. It's sick. I like that. This one. is a nice one. So I, I yeah mm-hmm. I, I just I'm not gonna buy a new one. I'm just gonna wear that one. I'll be happy. Yeah, it's really upsetting. Anything else for the World Cup, John? Any other things to watch or think about before we move on? I don't know. I'm just I'm psyched. I think yeah. this is going to be a great. In terms of the soccer, the terriblest stuff aside that we've discussed, I think this is going to be a great tournament. I think we have a couple really good teams that always kind of set the tone for how a tournament goes. And I think we've got a lot of other fun teams that could perform really well or underperform, which also makes things really fun. And we've got a lot of really fun players out here. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a great time. And I think, I think, I think Team USA will make us proud this year. That is, that is a genuine prediction that I actually do believe. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it, mm-hmm. John. Before we get out of here, um, I think we should talk a little bit about Andor. I think when we this should. podcast comes out, people will be well. You know, we've all seen ten, so eleven will be coming out next. There's only two more left at the time that That's we record so this. How good was episode 10? I don't even know how to like overstate it. Like just state. And Andor is the show from Disney Plus period that we have been asking for since this entire model was announced. We said maybe they'll make some actually good content. Well, we've had some disappointments along the way, some difficult times. And Andor is here answering all of our prayers as the best content to be released on Disney Plus so far. I'm officially saying that. It's better than The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. Andor is a home run of a Star Wars TV show and a home run of Star Wars content, period. The speech that Skarsgård's character that Luthen gives at the end of that episode literally had me floored. Mm -hmm. It was like genuinely good scripting as like as a movie period like when he says that line like you know what did i sacrifice i sacrificed everything and i was just like oh my gosh mm-hmm. that was incredible i know you loved andy circus's speech yes. also in that episode which was just also stunning in the contrast between them for me was just it just tied it all together yeah it, it- it's changing the way that I think about Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. It's making me question who the heroes are. Sunny Bunch moment. <laughs> not, not that the Empire is right. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> no. But, like, you watch, I mean, if you rewatch The New Hope and you see them mm-hmm. at the end celebrating, they're all getting their medals pinned on. And you're like, you guys didn't do this. Luke, Leia, Han. This wasn't your accomplishment. Oh, right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. This was Kino Loy's accomplishment. This yep. was Stellan Skarsgård's accomplishment, Luthen. Mm-hmm. This was Cassian Andor's accomplishment. The heroes of Star Wars are no longer the Force-sensitive Jedi. They are no longer the smuggling pirate. And they are no longer the princess. They are the heroes of Andor. Mm-hmm. And, Which I and, think, well, I, think well, I, I bet we'll see Leia in some capacity. At we least, might. like, tangentially in this show. Because yeah, it does seem like she plays a role in everything that happens. So I would be surprised if she didn't. To an extent, 
I bet that she will not actually appear though, because mm. I don't think I don't think this director will want to go the CGI route for no, her. No, I don't think personally. so either. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just yeah, it, it's it's reorienting the way that you watch the mm-hmm. original trilogy, which is crazy. Which is because, the whole point of Rogue One too. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. and Star Wars has been fine, fine to mediocre when it's tried to attach things on to the existing story like the Kenobi show and fill in that 10 year gap mm-hmm. or like Boba Fett a character who's left over from the original series those things sometimes work they're okay they're not always great um, they do a better job with the animated stuff with Ahsoka characters who are confined who were confined to the animated world that they're bringing to live action Ahsoka and the Mandalorian her getting her own show those things have been more successful but this as a, as a show where Tony Gilroy and the creators only inherited two real two characters from previously, Cassie and Amon Mothma, and everyone else they just made. And they made, and they're not just characters, but they are now in the Hall of Fame of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like top 10 in Star Wars mm-hmm. in a Disney Plus show that they just created. It's remarkable. It's, I think it's, rem- yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, um, I didn't think that, like you said, I didn't think they could do it. Yeah, I mean, you, when they announced that Cassian was going to get his own show, I was like, I mean, sure, Rogue One was amazing. I loved it. It's my second favorite Star Wars movie of all time after Empire Strikes Back. It's a stunning accomplishment of cinema. I loved Cassian. I was like, D- but does he need his own show? The answer is emphatically yes. Because this is, it's just, I think Cassian isn't the only force of, force of personality in this show. And I think a lot of the really emotional punches are actually delivered by other characters which mm-hmm. is great but i think it's an also, ensemble show mm-hmm, but he also ties it together really well mm-hmm. as kind of a reluctant character kind of coming to grips with who he is in a rebellion that he doesn't really want any part in you know and i think i think we're seeing him in trying to escape prison i think we're seeing him beginning to accept his role as the leader that he's going to become and watching him watching other leaders like you know take charge in moments where they have to sacrifice for freedom i think that's going to continue to shape the person he becomes by the time we see him in rogue one and that's why this show is just it's great because it's about characters you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's not about star wars ideas it's not about lore it's mm-hmm. about real people doing real things and asking the question, if Star Wars was real, what would all these people be doing and how would they react to these devastating circumstances? And I think the show is knocking it out of the park every time it asks those questions. Yeah. Two more it's episodes perfect. left in season one. And uh, I couldn't be more excited. And I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. dreading when it ends. Literally it, it, dreading. This is like the first Disney Plus show. I guess aside from The Mandalorian, but even more than The Mandalorian, where I am like, when is this episode coming out? Because I need to see yeah. it right now. Yeah. Um, if you haven't watched Andor, What are you doing? It. Yeah, What are you it. doing? That's the, the best question. thing on TV right now. It's not close either. Yeah, it's no, best not thing on TV. Bit. I think that's it for the podcast today, John. Um, yeah, man. I, I think next time we podcast, we will be in the World Cup. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be talking about games. We'll be talking about the USA. We will be talking more, obviously, about the situation around Qatar as well. We don't want to forget about that, even as we're enjoying what there is to enjoy. We're still remembering what needs to be remembered. Um, We'll be back with a podcast in the next week. Uh, I'm sure it'll be 
pretty much locked into the World Cup, yep. <laughs> at least until it's going on. I, I have nothing else in my mind. Yeah, I'm not. We might, you know, briefly dip our toe into another water, but it, it, this is a World Cup podcast until December nineteenth. Mm-hmm. So That's get correct. ready for that. <laughs> um, this is this is John's dream come true, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to to be along this journey with a with a true <laughs> soccer head like you, John. It's gonna be great. it's an inception moment. You're just walking through my dreams. That's right. That's right. Do you have any any final final thoughts, final challenges, admonitions um, for the listeners? Mm. Any, anything at all? I, well, I'm gonna have to start waking up early. Mm. That's the really un, that's the real real challenge here. Is I'm not gonna wake up for the 5 a.m. games, but if there are 8 a.m. games that I want to watch, you know, I may have to wake up sometimes for them. So that's gonna. There are five a.m. Eastern games. Yeah. So why are they doing that? Because it's because it's in Qatar. <laughs> That's so brutal. That makes me really sad. Mm-hmm. I don't think the okay. playoff games should be at five a.m. because those are like okay. early slate games. But, but I'll be early up. in the group stages. I'll tell you this: if USA is playing, I'm up. If no the USA the plays, hour. I will also get up. No matter the hour. Yeah, that's true. That is All true. Right. Cool. That's it. This is our commitment. <laughs> I, I think the true measure of something great is when John Nekrasov changes his sleep schedule for it. That's true. That's the true. That's the true measure of greatness. That's true. That that is how much I'm into this tournament. We're looking forward to it. And uh, until next week, I hope you all continue to be well and be safe. And we will talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.